We're going to read through the book of Jonah because it is a short story. If you do not know where Jonah is, it should be somewhere around page 774 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, large numbers are chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers. Jonah is one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament canon, a very familiar story to so many of us. We're going to begin reading in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The prophet writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself, we're here speaking to us today. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your territory? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men, men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the... Is the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it, in the shade, till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But but God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to it, that we would not be deceived by the enemy and that we would not have the good word snatched from us. Father, I pray that you would help me as I preach and I would... 
pray that you would help these, my friends, to understand what is being preached to them, that all of us would grow in our understanding of the word of Christ together as we give our attention to the book of Jonah. We thank you, Father, so much for your word. It is a privilege to have it in our own language, and we ask now that you would help us. Help us that we might grow in conformity with Christ. Help us that we might understand this prophet. Help us, Father, so that we might be able to continue to minister the gospel in this community. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Well, we've all had them, those friends who are so good at telling a story that the stories that they begin to tell are unbelievable. What was once their parents asking them to do a simple task and telling them that they would compensate them on the other side, a few days later at school becomes their parents bribing them for hundreds of thousands of dollars so that they might move trash from one end of the house to the other. It's so unbelievable that nobody believes it any longer. It becomes a fable. And often, if we're honest, that's how we approach the prophets. Friends that tell a really good story, but stories that seem almost unbelievable to us. But Jonah is no fable, and this is no mere story. The book of Jonah is undoubtedly one of the most well-known masterpieces of biblical literature. The account of Jonah's dramatic attempt to escape from God's presence by boarding the ship bound for Tarshish, only be thwarted by a raging storm and returned to land incarcerated within a great fish, is one of the best-known stories in all of the Bible. With all of its unexpected twists and turns, the plot successfully retains our attention throughout because superfluous details are omitted, the mark of a good storyteller, and the text abounds in word plays and satire. Everything, when we're reading it, especially out loud, indicates for us that it has been carefully composed by an author who knew how to use his literary skills to the full. But when did the story occur? Like a number of other books in the Minor Prophets, minor not because of their significance, but because of their size, Jonah contains no precise statement about when the events actually occurred in his narrative. An important clue for us as we begin our study of the book of Jonah, however, is the name Jonah, the son of Amittai. If you have your Bible, flip over to 2 Kings chapter 14. A name that we only see one more time in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 14, referring to a prophet who prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. 2 Kings chapter 14 teaches us that the events that we read of in the book of Jonah occur sometime in the 8th century. Events that taught Jonah in a very profound way the truth that runs like a plot line throughout the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It was a hard lesson for Jonah to learn throughout the narrative. It involved a very physical reproof, but it also brought correction. Trained in the gymnasium of God's special providences to be an obedient servant, Jonah was equipped by what he learned about himself as he moved throughout the narrative. And in that sense, when we read the book of Jonah, it's not simply biographical, it's autobiographical, although it's written in the third person. And as is often the case when we're reading autobiographies, we find ourselves 
and our own heart mirrored in the experience of Jonah. That's why we love the story so much. We learn by what he failed to do. The teaching of Jonah searches our hearts and our consciences in a special way because it is the story of a man who's on the run from God. It traces not only his journey throughout life, but it unravels the inner workings of his heart, his fears, his anger, his motivations, his passing moods, in each of the book's four scenes. At sea, chapter 1. Under the sea, chapter 2. In Nineveh, chapter 3. And just outside Nineveh, in chapter 4. But the book of Jonah is not primarily about his fears or his motivations and passing moods. And it's not intended to communicate simply a message, but messages when we read it and reread it and reread it. Messages of sovereignty and evangelism, of a prophet who rebels and of pagans who repent, of temporary repentance in chapter 2 and genuine repentance in chapter 4, of God's character and love for the nations. As Jonah tries to run from God and refuses God's mercy to his own enemies, we learn that the Lord does care for the non-Jewish nations, though when we're reading Joel and Amos and Obadiah, the Scripture might seem to suggest otherwise. And Jonah proves that that care extends even to the Assyrians, the most vicious and powerful of all Israel's ancient enemies, a point that Isaiah 19 has already made. If you have your Bible, flip over to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah 19, verse 19. A passage so stunning that when we're reading it regularly in our Bible reading programs, we probably pay no attention to what it actually says. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord God because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliverer and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. A point that Jonah makes as well as God sends a prophet to preach to the Assyrians and what we know as Mosul, northern Iraq, so that they too may come to know the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. But as E.J. Young recognized years ago, the main message of Jonah is actually about Christ. The fundamental principle of the book of Jonah is not found in its missionary teaching, though that's how most of us understand it, and typically when the missionary's in town, what we ask him to preach is the book of Jonah. It is rather to show that Jonah, being cast into the depths of Sheol, and yet brought up alive is an illustration of the death of the Messiah for sins, not his own, 
and the Messiah's own resurrection. So reflecting on the book of Jonah, G. Campbell Morgan once quipped, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. As we shall discover, Jonah is not a book about a great fish or a great prophet. It is a book about a great God, a God who loved one man enough that he taught that one man through painful providence to discover the true character of God, the God that he served in the earlier years of his life. Jonah found that the doctrine of God, with which he was already very familiar, come alive in his experience. And friends, that is my prayer for all of us as we study this book. That the doctrine of God that so many of us are so very familiar with, that we regularly confess together as a congregation, would come alive in our own lives and experiences so that you and I might learn what Jonah learned in his flight from God. Jonah is a fascinating, instructive, and practical book that is primarily about God. So five points about God will frame our study today. God's Word, God's presence, God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's grace. Notice first God's Word. Look with me again in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. So he paid to the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The opening lines of any story are absolutely crucial, especially in a book that doesn't have a table of contents. And these lines set us up for absolute shock as we are introduced to the only character in this short story who is actually given a name, verse 1, Jonah the son of Amittai. We are not given very much information about him, only his name and the name of his father, nothing else. Where does he live? A mystery. Who are his friends, his teachers, and his acquaintances? Impossible to ascertain. What was he doing before this incident that made him so famous and infamous? Nobody knows. So why is his biography so thin if the book is about him? It's actually a really important interpretive question as we turn our attention to the book of Jonah. The message of Jonah is not merely a rebuke to Jonah the prophet. Here's one bad prophet, let me tell you how I corrected him. But a rebuke to the entire nation of Israel whom Jonah represents. God intended to say something to the Israelites and now to the church in succeeding generations about their relationship to the Gentiles when, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. A phrase that we find over and over again, countless times in books of the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. An expression that we're so familiar with that we stop paying attention to the fact that it tells us something startling, that God speaks to men, and that a message comes from God to his messengers hundreds of times in the Old Testament that they might deliver a message from God to other people. An idiom that teaches us that God's word came to Jonah. And Jonah was to take God's word to the Assyrians. Friends, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God has chosen to use his word to convict of sin and to bring life. But we need his word not only to be convicted of sin and be brought to everlasting life, we need his word to continually challenge us and shape us, to guide us and direct us. His word not only gives us life, but it gives us direction as it keeps molding us and shaping us into the image of the God that we profess to follow and to serve, the God who is speaking to us through his word. 
So if you were looking for a good prophet in ancient Israel to follow, the very first and most important thing that you would do is consider, is this a prophet who is speaking God's word? Just like when you're looking for a good church today. Not how friendly you think their members are. Not how good you think their music is or does it meet all of your musical needs and tastes. Not how helpful you think the programming of the church is and does it meet all the needs that you think that you have for yourself or for your family. But the congregation's commitment to the centrality of God's word coming from the front. How will you know? You will see it throughout the entirety of the service. From the presider and the songs that are sung and the preacher who is speaking in the context of that church And that means that you might have to be okay with some things failing or not being done as long as God's word is preached and centralized. God's word came to Jonah, and Jonah was to take God's word to the Assyrians because they had been, verse 2, wicked. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah had one job, to call out against the Ninevites because of their evil. That evil had come up before God, and it had offended a holy God. Jonah was to do what most of us are afraid to do, call out against sinners for their evil. He was to go, and the message of hope that he was to deliver was that there was a coming judgment for the wickedness in their lives. Not merely a hope of present salvation, but a hope that comes in future salvation because there is judgment that is coming upon sin. He was to proclaim judgment for their sin, judgment that the God of heaven and earth would bring upon them. God commanded Jonah to go and to proclaim to them that their wickedness had been exposed, that what they thought had been covered up and no one had seen is not covered up and God has seen. Friends, perhaps in our own lives here today, we think that no one sees and no one hears And no one is paying attention because we seem to have gotten away with it. No one seems to have cared, and God seems to think that it's not that big of a deal because there's no immediate consequence. These words from God to Jonah to these people tell us that that is not the case, that there is a God in heaven who sees, there is a God in heaven who cares, there is a God in heaven who is paying very careful attention to all of the details of our lives. And what he does through the prophets is to tell us that there is a judgment that is coming for the wickedness of our sins. The hope of the gospel is only hopeful because we recognize what we have been saved from. Jonah is to go to these people and to tell them there is judgment for what you are doing. God sees, God hears, and God will bring it all to an account. Jonah was to go. And to do what perhaps most of us are afraid to do. Let me ask you, believer in here. Is your gospel presentation a full gospel presentation? Are you telling people about the love of Christ? Which is wonderful, and you should. But you are failing to tell them about the judgment that will come if they do not believe in Christ. The very real hell that they will experience apart from Christ. Whether they are your family or your friends. Your long-term colleagues or your new neighbors? Is your gospel presentation a complete gospel presentation? Telling them about the judgment that they must flee from in Christ. Jonah was to do what most of us are afraid to do. God commanded him to go and to preach against Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. God's word comes to Jonah, and he says, get up, 
go to the Gentiles, which is not exactly what we're expecting when we read the Old Testament, if we're honest. We expect that to be Paul's job in the New Testament, but not exactly what we would expect when reading the Old Testament and not exactly what Jonah would want to hear concerning the Assyrians who had devastated his homeland, the northern kingdom. Since his appearance for us in 2 Kings chapter 14, the Assyrians have invaded in 2 Kings chapter 15 and have destroyed Samaria. And now here Jonah is prophesying in the last period of Israel's history. And Jonah is shocked to hear that God is sending him to preach to the Gentiles because he knows that when God warns people about their verse 2, evil, it is an act of mercy because it gives sinners a chance to repent. The fact that God wants Jonah to arise and to go to Nineveh shows God's love for the Gentiles from the very beginning of this book. He calls out against the very people that he intends to save. And he does that through the preaching of his word, which has come to this prophet. He does it through the preaching of his word. God's Holy Spirit creates God's holy people through the preaching of God's holy word. And that word is a message of salvation that comes through judgment. God's word, notice second, God's presence. Look with me again in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Instead of Isaiah's, here I am, send me, Jonah says, I'm out of here. But why? Why would Jonah respond so differently? Why disobey God's word? Nothing excuses Jonah's actions, but when we read a little more carefully and consider Jonah's time in history, we might have a little more clarity as to why Jonah is doing the things that he's doing. Prophesying in the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II, an evil king leading the people into the same sins of Jeroboam I, the son of Nebat, Jonah finds himself now living in enemy-occupied territory with Samaria destroyed and the northern kingdom no longer in existence. So when the Lord tells him to preach against Nineveh, he was probably pleased that the, until he realized that the Lord had other plans. After all, if God simply wanted to wipe out Nineveh, all of his enemies, why would God send a prophet preacher? Why not just send one of his angels to go into the city and find out if there are 10 righteous men, as he did in Abraham's time? Jonah knows that when the Lord warns people about their sins, it's an act of mercy because it gives sinners a chance to repent, and that actually teaches something about God whose presence he's fleeing. God is patient, not punitive. He does not treat people as their sins deserve. Friends, he has not treated you as your sins deserve. So why are you being more punitive than patient with the people around you? Perhaps you're here today and you think that you have been burdened having to show mercy to people that are hard to live with and difficult to be members with and difficult to share life with. Friend, let me ask you, if God treated you the way that you treat other people, how much hope would you have in this life? If God was impatient with you, as impatient with you as you have been impatient with others, your spouse, your kids, the fellow members of your church, your neighbors, your colleagues, your coworkers, what hope would you have for tomorrow? 
If God was as quick to judge you and write you off as you have been quick to judge other people and write them off, thinking they are beyond the reach of the Almighty's hand, what kind of confidence would you have in your salvation? Right here at the very beginning, we learn something about this God, this God that Jonah is fleeing from, that he is patient, not punitive, that he is merciful even to those who have been wicked and their wickedness has come up in his sight. Jonah knows what kind of God he serves. We don't know that yet in the narrative, but when we read the whole narrative, we know that at the end. Jonah knew from the very beginning, I know what kind of God you are. So I did not want to do this. And as we'll see, he knows that the Lord is compassionate and slow to anger. Are you slow to anger? Are you compassionate? Are you quick to listen? Are you slow to speak? You see, one of the freedoms that we all feel that we have in this society is that I have the freedom to say whatever I want unchallenged and you all must listen to me. But the reality is, is that you all feel the exact same freedoms to say whatever you want and not have anybody to interrupt you and that they must listen to you. But the scripture calls us something entirely different. Being slow to speak, slow to anger, compassionate, patient, not punitive. And he knows that the Lord has compassion on Assyria. And if the Lord is having compassion on Assyria, Israel is in bigger trouble than ever because Jonah loves his country despite her sins. For the sake of Israel, Jonah wants Assyria to be destroyed without any warnings. You think of the same type of sentiment how most Americans probably felt right after 9-11, how they would have thought of the Middle East. That's how Jonah was thinking right now. I don't want the people who just messed up things in my country to get the gospel. I want everybody to have judgment brought upon their head. That's the kind of way that Jonah's thinking right now. He doesn't want to have any part in helping his mortal enemy. He doesn't want to have any part in helping his enemy prosper. Jonah knows that God will show mercy, and that makes him not only angry but afraid, and he'd rather flee than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Would you? Would you rather flee than live with the God who forgives your enemies? Friends, when I say that to you, I recognize that perhaps... Sometimes the people who have been your greatest enemies have been the people who were closest to you, a spouse or a family member, colleague or a kid, people who could use your life against you, pain that is so deep, pain that is so deep that we've changed the way that we live around those people. Would you rather not that God showed them mercy or bless those that you think unworthy of blessing? Jonah knows what kind of God he serves. And he knows other prophets have prophesied against the nations. But no other prophet has been sent personally to preach to another nation. This is new. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. This is new. And Jonah knows the law well enough to know that it can only mean one thing. As a prophet of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Verse 15. But Jeshurun, that is Israel, grew fat and kicked. He grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God, who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked God to anger. 
They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of their provocation, the provocation of the sons and daughters of Israel. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. The Lord's punishment fits their crime. If Israel has provoked God to jealousy, he will provoke them to jealousy, and he will be doing it by turning his attention to another nation, even another nation that has destroyed his people's homeland. In the long run, the Scripture teaches us that this mercy to the nations is actually a mercy to Israel, and it is part of the Lord's way of waking them up and bringing back his wayward bride. From the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God disciplines the people that he loves, that he wakes them with startling providences. He loves them so much that he will do astonishing things, things that they never thought that he would do so that they might finally realize who he is and what kind of God they serve. As God's word comes to Jonah and it tells him, go to another nation and preach to that nation. And Jonah, because he knows his Bible, and is aware of what has taken place, sees what is happening, that the Lord is turning his attention to his new people, and he says, no way. I am not doing that. I am not preaching to the people who killed my people. I am not preaching to the people who destroyed my homeland. And like Israel, he was provoked to jealousy and anger when the Lord shows his attention and blessing to a people that he thinks unworthy of God's love and mercy. Friends, I wonder in what ways we've responded similarly when the Lord has shown kindness and mercy to people that we didn't think worthy of mercy or kindness or blessing or favor or opportunity or gift or privilege or prestige. And we find ourselves in our hearts. It's the acid that destroys its own container. It rots our souls as we look at people in those ways. Meanwhile, we come to church, dying on the inside. Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, dying, refuses to take the word of the Lord to these people. He does not want to help Assyria repent. So Jonah runs away. But for those who know the story, they know it's a useless flight. God's word, God's presence. Notice third, God's sovereignty. Look in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Or, What are you doing? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah is so determined to run away from God that the writer shows us in great detail how determined he was in his efforts. First, Jonah goes down to Joppa, which is a port city in modern Tel Aviv. 
Second, he boards a ship at Tarshish, that is, uh, a ship bound for Tarshish. And while the location of Tarshish is much disputed by everything, one thing is agreed upon by absolutely every commentator that you will read. It is in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. The Lord commands Jonah to go eastward. Jonah decides, great idea, I'm going to go westward. Jonah took it upon himself to run away from the presence of the Lord. And that begins his long downfall in the story. The whole time that he decides to run from the Lord, he is going down, down to Joppa to catch a boat, down and to the boat, down to sleep in the boat, and ultimately, as we see in chapter 2, down into the very depths of the sea. Friends, Jonah's life teaches us that fleeing the Lord always takes you down. It takes you places that you would never go in your right mind because sin blinds us and makes us so foolish and stupid. You say things and do things and act in ways that you would never act if you thought your sin out. Friends, some of us have sinned greatly against people in this congregation because we gave no thought to what we were doing. Some of us have sinned against other people in our lives because we gave no thought to what we were doing. And afterwards, we ask ourselves, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? I can't believe I said that. The scripture is constantly confronting you and says, God can, because he knows what's in your heart. You're not good. You're evil. You're not righteous. You're wicked. And when put in situations where you're finally pressed and squeezed, You act in ways that you thought that you had matured past and say words that you never thought that you would ever say again, that you didn't even know were in there. Third, he travels by sea. This is not the third point, third in how he's running. Traveling by sea in the ancient world took a long time. So the narrator wants us to see not only that he's running from God and going down to Joppa and trying to flee to Tarshish and going down into, into the bottom of the ship, but it wants us to see how he travels. If he gets on a ship, it's going to take a long time because it goes at a painstakingly slow place, uh, pace. This is no carnival cruise. The sea was only able to be traveled a few months of the year, so Jonah knows what he's doing. If I get on that boat, I do not have to obey for a long time. Jonah's disobedience shows us that he was committed to his disobedience. He was determined to escape from God's sovereign control and God's sovereign word. But disobedience is merely the surface problem in the narrative. There is more fundamentally issue at stake and lurking below the surface than just his behavior. He's not simply running away from God as much as he's running to get out of having to be a prophet. He's running away from, verse 3, the presence of the Lord. A very important phrase when we think of the Old Testament because we see that the prophets were called to stand before the Lord. They were those who would enter into the assembly of the Lord and receive the word of the Lord and take it to the people of the Lord. By fleeing, Jonah shows that it's not that he just wants to not do what God is telling him to do, that he no longer wants to be God's servant. I'm out. I quit. I don't care. I don't want to be in your presence. And I'm not going to do that. If being a prophet means helping the Assyrians, Jonah wants to resign completely. I wonder how many times in your Christian faith you've thought, if that's what the Lord requires me to do, to go there, to forgive like that, to serve in that way, to give up this right or that privilege, I'm out. But the sovereign Lord who had taken the first move by addressing Jonah now takes the initiative again. Verse 4. 
But the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah's escape does not quite go as planned. God sent the storm, the storm raged, and it was so savage upon the seas that the ship threatened to break up, and the men who were experienced on the sea get a little uneasy and queasy, verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So frightened are these sailors by the tempestuous storm that one man after another is crying out to his God and jettisoning cargo. But not all on board were frantic, were they? Verse 6. Sorry, verse 5. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The wind howls, the waves crash, the spray hisses, the ship cracks and breaks, the sailors reel, and Jonah sleeps. But the sovereign God disturbs his slumber by the captain. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, now pay careful attention to what he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The irony of the request cannot have escaped Jonah. Arise. Call out. Since Jonah's sole reason for being on board the ship was he was fleeing, doing what God said, and saying what God said. And now the captain's request parodies God's initial summons in chapter 1, earlier in verse 1 and 2 as each word mocks the prophet running from the duties of his office. Why did he think that he would get away with it? Why do we think that we would get away with it? Somehow we know from being here week after week that we won't get away with it, and yet we do it anyways. Did he think that he could travel beyond the Lord's jurisdiction? He knew the sovereign God's rule extended beyond the dry land of the sea. God's word, God's presence... God's sovereignty, notice fourth, God's rule. Look in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. God rules over a game of chance to show that Jonah is their man, and then they pepper him with questions. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And the reluctant prophet does not answer the first question. He answers the last question. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And imagine the irony. And I fear the God the Lord of heaven and earth, who made the sea and the dry land. No, he doesn't. He doesn't fear the God he has consciously disobeyed any more than you and I show that we fear the Lord when we consciously disobey what the Scripture teaches us. Friends, can you really say that you obey the Lord when you don't do what he's commanded you to do in his word? If God cannot command you to do things that you do, want, do not want to do, he is either not God or he is not your God. But by God's rule, his sin found him out, and the sailors were, verse 10, exceedingly afraid, and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. His sin did not occur in a vacuum. His sin did not just impact his life. 
Jonah rejects God's counsel and command for him. He personally flees, and now these men and their lives are at stake. The community around Jonah is at risk because of his sin. Members of this church, your sin does not only impact you. The community is at stake, which is why we discipline sin in the congregation. Everybody is at risk when we can look at sin and no longer call it sin and no longer deal with it. Everybody's in danger in those moments. So the most loving thing that we can do as a congregation is not only be people who obey God's word and turn away from our sin, but call sin out and say this is disobedience to God because it puts everybody at risk. And yet the Lord would use him despite his disobedience. God's word, God's presence, God's sovereignty, God's rule. Notice fifth, God's grace. Look in verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging, and the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sailors asked Jonah one more question. What shall we do for you that the sea may quiet down for us? And in what might seem to us a humble act of self-sacrifice, Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea because there is no better way than to get away from having to obey God than being dead. But the sailors either don't believe Jonah or don't trust him. So they, verse 13, rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now just pause for a moment and to think how sad it is that the very people who are not God's people and the very people who are unrighteous in God's sight and the very people who are the unbelievers in the narrative show themselves to be not only more responsive to God's word, but they do not trust God's mouthpiece any longer. God's prophet is not believed and God's pagan people or more repentant than God's prophet. But unable to row against the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, the sailors finally, verse 14, called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. They're innocent. They know he's guilty. Jonah knew that he was guilty and that they were innocent. He compromised them, and they're not willing to quickly throw him into the water. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You have found out this man and all of his sin. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. But the chapter continues to be a satire of the unexpected. So verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. The hardened sailors were spiritually affected by his presence and God's dealing with him. And though he doesn't want to be a prophet, the Lord makes sure that he is. When the storm arises on the sea, all the sailors were afraid, and they begin to cry out to their gods. 
And then they learn what Jonah has done, and then they're exceedingly afraid again. And then when they finally throw Jonah into the sea, and the seas become calm, they feared again, but they feared the Lord exceedingly. Not their gods, who are not gods, not the situation that was scary, but the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. And by the end of the chapter, they are no longer serving their own gods, but the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah flees the presence of God. He resigns his post as a prophet because he doesn't want to run the risk of converting the Assyrians. And the very first thing that God has him do is convert a boatload of pagan sinners. The prophet rebels and the pagans repent the very people that we are least, in, least expecting to repent in the narrative. And friends, there is the gospel for all of us. And such were some of you. The very people that the world least expected to receive eternal life and mercies from God on high. The very people who, because of your sins, were separated from God and deserved all of the wrath and all of the judgment that the Assyrians have mustered in their lives. The very people that the world would look down upon and overlook because when they look at us, they do not see anything impressive. They don't see anything that is worthy of admiration or prestige. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has for his people, pours out the riches of his grace on the least expecting, most undeserving, hardened, rebellious people. Friends, God has shown great mercy to us like he showed these people. He led people to repentance that nobody's expecting to be saved in the narrative, just like he led you to repentance through the preaching of his word. And this is the good news of the gospel, that God softens the hardened and he makes those hardened people his people, that God does the good work of saving people who cry out to their pagan gods and their pagan deliverers and their false hope of assurance. God breaks everything underneath them and he calls them to everlasting life so that we, a people who did not fear God, would now fear God. Praise God, some of you got saved when you were very young, and it's hard for you to remember what life was like before you were a Christian, but some of you, you remember it very clearly. You remember how desperate was your situation, and you remember that if people were here voting on you from your high school class, they would have voted on you most likely to be in prison or dead by now. But God showed mercy to people that no one expected to receive mercy. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. They were afraid and friend, if you are not a Christian here today, you should be terribly afraid. You should be afraid of the wrath to come. This is no game, and this is not my shtick. This is not a unique service. The wrath to come will come, and you will be found out, and you will be broken. And in those moments, you will bow before Almighty God. You will do it willingly, or you will do it then. But friend... Everybody in this church who is a believer is calling out to you saying that if you are not a believer, God shows mercy to people just like you, to people just like me, to people just like these sailors, if you would but repent of your sins and trust in his Christ. Will you believe? Will you trust? Will you be born again? What is preventing you from today from coming to Christ? Is it the fact that other people here might think that you're already a Christian? Friends, there would be no greater delight in our life than to rejoice with you and to show that even though you, we thought you were a Christian or you thought yourself to be a Christian, that today was the day that God caused you to be born again. 
Or is it because you think that you're too far gone? Friends, the astounding thing of the book of Jonah is that it is as marvelous as the book of Ephesians. You might think that you could send yourself beyond the reach of God's grace. And the book of Jonah tells you that that is impossible. That God will find you out and he will reach you in the darkest moments of your life and he will save you because he is a merciful and forgiving and gracious God. Come to him. Believe in him. Friend, I would love to talk to you. Find me after the service. Find one of our elders today. We would love to speak with you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice their response. Believer, notice the response. The appropriate response to God's grace is worship. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Believer, are you worshiping with a glad heart today? Dan's comments are often the best sermon that is preached here on a Sunday, but what he said today was incredibly true, reminding us that perhaps some of us come in here with difficult providences today and it is very hard to worship. And yet we find that in the midst of difficult providences in our lives, we are to give sacrifice and make vows and be faithful and respond in worship. It is, as one preacher noted, a very clear illustration as well of the principle that the fruitfulness of our lives for God is no guarantee of the closeness of our lives to God and His will when the sailors convert because they hear a few words from a single prophet. Friends, If you're a believer, beware of mistaking usefulness for God as communion with God. There is a sermon that if you have been my friend for any length of time at all, you know that I listen to every year, The Temptation of Ministry by Tim Keller. That's at Beeson Divinity School. If you've never listened to it, you should go listen to it. And one of the most damaging and damning things in that sermon is that he tells the story of a friend who was a faithful preacher, or so it seemed. But underneath in his life, he was living a wicked life an unfaithful life. And years later, after he had been found out, loses ministry, loses wife, loses kids, loses friends, Tim asked him, why didn't you repent? And he said, every time I was about to confess the sin, because I thought that now was the time, somebody got converted. Or I was invited to do something for God. Or something else good happened in my life. And I began to think, deceive myself. Is it really that bad? can't be that bad if this good thing happened. Believer, do not be self-deceived. You might get a promotion and a spouse and a kid and a car and a degree and all the friends you ever want and fool everybody in this room, but you will never fool God. And if it doesn't find you out in this life, it will find you out in the next. Being used by God is not the same as being close to God in communion. Jonah is an illustration for us of that. And friends, I wonder if that can be true of our church too. That good things can happen. We have air conditioning when it's 97 degrees outside. And there are people who are filling the building and our membership is growing. And perhaps we ourselves are turning away from God. Believer, are you hardened and deceived? Jonah may have thought that God had given him success. Just think of how he would have been deceived. I'm running from God, but you know what? There's a boat there. So if God didn't want me to go, there wouldn't have been a boat. Oh, you know what? I got on the boat and there was a fare and I had enough money. So because I could get on the boat, God must be okay with this decision. 
you know what? Because I'm down here and I can actually fall asleep in the midst of this storm, how bad can it really be? In all of those moments, Jonah would have been completely deceived in his interpretation of God's providence. Well, just because good things are happening. God hasn't yet found me out. Friends, God is working from eternity for eternity, finding people out and calling people in. He has been patient, not punitive, and so should we. Jonah is a fascinating book. From its 48 verses, the book of Jonah has attracted a stunning amount of attention. And Jonah is a prophet, despite the fact that the book is primarily about Jonah's life and not his prophetic message. There's only one verse that tells us of his prophetic message. Jonah is also the Bible's only prophet sent to the Gentiles. Others speak to them, but Jonah is deployed to them. And as we'll see next week, he gets gulped down by a fish, and he lives to tell about it. But Jonah is not about Jonah. Jonah is about a great God. And the question for us as we read Jonah is, do you worship Jonah's great God? Let's pray. Father, we know that you are a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, not treating people as their sins deserve. And today you have shown a kindness to us. You've brought us to worship. You've submitted us to your word. You sat us under its teaching again. And we ask, Father, that we would not be deceived as to thinking everything's okay if it is not. We pray, Father, that we would not have to let you find our sin out, but that we would freely confess it as we confessed our sin earlier in the service, may we confess specifically before our sin devastates us and takes us places that we would never go in our right mind. And Father, we pray for those who are not believers here today, whether they think themselves to believers and are not, or whether they are not believers and they know they're not. We pray that today they would hear of the great God who shows his steadfast love and mercy to those who fear him. And may they find that in that fear there is forgiveness of sins. Father, help us as we sing to be reminded afresh of our great God. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.